Uh, Father, we do thank you and praise you uh, for this day. We thank you for this life that we have in Christ. We thank you, uh, Lord, for um, this plan that you set in motion, Lord, from, from basically the fall back in Genesis chapter 3, uh, verse 15, where as humanity sinned and was changed, that we were separated from you through this sin, that you set a plan in motion uh, where a Messiah was promised that would deal with the consequences of sin. We see this, this plan unfolding all through the Old Testament and being realized in, in the person of Jesus. And so as we continue this story through the, the, the Last Supper and this evening, uh, Father, we pray that you would help us to, to, to see and to feel uh, the gravity of this, this evening. Um, the words that Jesus left us with, Lord, are profound. And, and in many ways, I feel inadequate to, um, to, to share uh, from this passage. Um, there's a depth here. And so, Father, I pray that as we work through this passage, that your spirit would illuminate the meaning of this, this chapter and, and really help your words to come alive in our hearts, that we would uh, walk away from today uh, closer to you and having a deep, deeper and more profound understanding of who Jesus is, what he desires from us, and, Lord, how we should navigate these lives that we, we live in the midst of a world that really stands against you. And so, Father, we are just, just deeply grateful for this time that we have with one another. And it's in Jesus' good name we pray. Amen. All right, so we're going to go through the whole chapter, but I'm only going to read the first few verses here. So John chapter 15, verse 1. I am the true vine... And my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it so that it may bear more fruit. You are already clean because of the word which I've spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away as a branch and dries up and they gather them and cast them into the fire and they are burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. My Father is glorified by this, that you will bear much fruit. And so prove to be my disciples. Just as the Father has loved me, I have also loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandment, commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I've spoken to you, so that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be made full. And Father, we do uh, just give you thanks, Lord, uh, for this section of scripture. There's so much here. We pray, Father, that you would help us to understand uh, your love for us and what you desire from us in response. Uh, we are grateful for this relationship that we have with you. And it's in Christ's good name, I pray. Amen. All right, so there's sort of, there's three sections in today's passage. I read the, the first section. The, the first section, we see sort of two key words within this section. The first key word is abide. You probably saw that word over and over and over again. I probably, there's probably 10 times if I counted correctly and highlight, but as I read through, I'm like, oh, I missed one. And so, uh, the word abide happens a whole bunch of times. And then the second word that appears a whole bunch of times is bears fruit within this section. And so this idea of abiding in Jesus, and as we abide in Jesus, this, this fruit will appear. Uh, the second section, verses 12 through 17, uh, continues and sort of 
there's, there's a highlighting of, of what is this fruit that he desires to see. And the fruit that he desires to see, it then goes into this, this idea of, of love manifesting itself out like amongst each other and how we interact and engage with one another. This commandment in verse 12, he says that you love one another as I have commanded you. Back in John chapter 13, verses 34 through 35, as Jesus had just washed the disciples' feet at the Lord's Supper, he says, a new commandment I give to you is that you love one another as I have loved you. And then the last section, verses 18 through 27, I've been trying to think of something to sort of identify this. And it's probably offensive, but I kind of like the kumbaya section is over. It's kind of like there's persecution coming. So Jesus is like a very, like a realist in what they're to fa- about to face um, this night. And and basically for the the duration of their lives, all of these guys except for John would ultimately be executed for their faith and proclamation of who Jesus is. And so they had, they had a tough road to, to hoe. And... And so as we come to this section, just kind of backing up to the previous verse uh, and the picture that's behind me here, uh, we, we read, get up, let's go from here. And so the teaching kind of continues. So there, it's believed that, so we start in the upper room, and then the upper room sort of transitions into this, this walk that they're, they're progressing towards the Garden of Gethsemane. And if I could get... Um, Somebody to maybe Robert's coming up here just to kind of dim the lights. I don't know. I can see it pretty well. Um, this is a, a picture um, looking. It's a super wide angle picture, which I thought was helpful uh, from the Mount of Olives looking towards Jerusalem, just to sort of orientate you guys there. See that the Dome of the Rock that was not there during Jesus time. But this is basically the location of where the temple was. You have the wall going around Jerusalem, and then this is the the wall of the the temple. Uh, This is the eastern gate right here. Little fun fact, free of charge. Uh, Prophecy says that the Messiah is going to return and enter through that. And so the Muslims, what they have done to sort of contaminate the land, thinking that they, they can stop the Messiah from returning, is they have placed a bunch of their graves right up along the gate, and then they've sealed the entrance. So that should stop him. But then there's another prophecy. There's another prophecy in Zechariah that talks about a huge earthquake that's going to split this land from north to south, and the water's going to flood out and it'll open up the gate. So it's kind of fascinating. Um, hopefully, like we were supposed to be in Israel right now, the trip got uh, canceled, and they just reached out to me. So maybe in two years we'll we'll do a trip to Israel again. I do think it's super significant. Um, as, so over here in this general vicinity. Between my shaky hand and the picture, I might hit the spot, but we don't really know. They, we believe kind of the upper room is over there. I believe when you go to Israel, they take you to a spot that they think might be the upper room, but who knows. Um, and so it's kind of like they were up in this area. And then they made their way down. You can kind of see the road that kind of goes down. This is the Kedron Valley down in here. Then these are all the grave sites on the Mount of Olives. Somewhere up over in this region is the Garden of Gethsemane, where the olive trees are. But during Jesus' time, this was probably all you know trees. And so they're making their way in the middle of the night from, uh, from this general area down around into the Kedron Valley, and they're going to find themselves in the Garden of Gethsemane. You can turn on the lights, Robert. Thank you. Um, they're going to find themselves in the Garden of Gethsemane, where Jesus is going to begin praying that the pressure of the night, Judas is already gone at this point in the story. He's, he's coming to betray them. Things are coming to a head very quickly. And so Jesus is giving some sort of the, his, some of his, his last parting words. And we don't, we don't know it from the text, but it's very possible as they're walking, they came across a vineyard. Uh, the, yeah, I learned this week, um, well, Grapes are probably one of my favorite fruit because they're super, super convenient. Anywhere in the world you can find them. That's not what I learned this week. I've known that. Um, but I learned that, that grapes are probably one of the oldest fruit that has been available. And they're in basically every sort of, every culture, every place in the world, like for, for thousands of thousands of years, they can track 
uh, grapes because they're such a, a useful fruit. They make raisins, they make grapes, and they make wine. And so, like, the world loves them because of that. And so they may have stumbled across a vine that would be in character for Jesus. He was such a practical teacher. He would see things, and then he would teach from the thing that was before them in a way that was super-duper powerful. And so this chapter, there's just so much richness. I'm going to sort of talk through it, and then when I talk through each section, I'll go to my notes and see if I missed anything. Um, but there's just so much here. And, and there's so much of this chapter that I can teach and I can share with you what's said here, but so much of this is for, for this to get into your hearts and for you to ponder and to chew over and to consider and to meditate and to grow deeper with Jesus as you think about what he said. And so he begins in verse 1 with this, I am the true vine and my father is the vine dresser. What we're not going to get into today, but as you read the Old Testament, there's a whole bunch of of pictures of Israel supposed to be this vineyard and it's supposed to be this, this, uh, this, this light unto the world for who God is, and they failed. And so now Jesus comes and he says, I am the true vine, and my father is the, the vine dresser. And he says, every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it so that it may bear more fruit. And so there's this picture of the grape, the, 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 the grapevine. I, uh, sort of what I've come to learn from the time, I'm not a farmer. I don't own a vineyard. Um, I've killed a couple grape plants over my days. But there's, so the vine plant, as the main stem grows, goes out, it's basically only good for producing fruit. Like you can't build chairs with it. You can't do stuff. And so... As it comes out and as it's being sort of pruned, to, as it's kind of being sort of fashioned to where it's supposed to go, um, parts are trimmed off, other parts are trimmed off. And so in here, he says, if, if there's some that's dead and it's not producing, that gets chopped off. There are other ones that if it's going really good, that gets cut back so that it produces more. So as we go through this, this passage, Jesus is saying, okay, I'm the vine. And there's branches that are coming out of me, and there's some branches that are dead wood, and we, we trim those off, we cut them, we get rid of them. There are others that are producing, and then we, can, we cut those back so that they produce more. It's, it's counterintuitive. My wife is here. She hates this process. She absolutely, my wife is like a hippie at heart. And so anytime when there's like trees or plants, I like cutting stuff. I mean, I just like, let's just take it down. Let's just... I mean, weed whacking, it's, you know, that's not so much fun, but, but the trees, I like butcher it down and she comes out and she's like, not my tree. And it's like, we got to pay to have a guy come do the trees. And she's like, you're going to kill, you're going to, it's like, we have to. She's like, I know, but I don't, I just, I don't, I don't, I don't want it. I remember we got our, our oaks pruned one year and she came out she's like, I hate it. It looks like a park. And I'm like, what? Like, it's like, she's like, I like the more rustic, you know, and. And so it just is like, so Jesus is beginning to say like in our own lives and with people as he's this vine, there, there are some that are going to get cut off. And then, the, then if like even from the positive light, if you're abiding in Jesus and you're walking and, you're, and God's doing stuff in your life, he's going to start pruning you. And it's not always pleasant. Like, and so he starts cutting back and it's like, why is he doing this? And well, he's doing it so that you'll produce more fruit. So... Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it so that you may bear more fruit. So you can't, it's your, whatever happens, you're going to get pruned. Uh, Verse three, you are already clean. Now this word for clean, and some translations in the previous verse where I read prunes, you might have clean there. These words are interchangeable. They're the same word. And so it's likely what he's saying, what I think he's saying here is, you are already pruned because of the word which I have spoken to you. Now, it's fascinating to me. Like in, in my study, from the time you plant a grape and you get it all sort of dressed out and how you want it to go before it starts producing fruit, it takes three years. And so how long has Jesus been working with these guys? He's been working with them for three years. He knows he's going to get arrested. He knows that he's going to get executed. He knows that he's going to the grave and that he's going to rise again. 
and these guys are going to be set out. And so his word, his training, the time is complete. It's ready for them to start producing. They are pruned already because of the word which he has spoken to them. And he says for the first time, and this is going to repeat multiple times in this section, abide in me. And so the question is, what does the word abide mean? And simply put, this means to just to like take residence and to get comfortable in and with, just to sort of to move in and occupy a place. And so we're supposed to move into Jesus. And if you read through the New Testament and so much of the, uh, the epistles talk about being in Christ and all of the benefits that flow from being in Christ, and he's saying, abide in me, take residence in me, and I in you. This is a sort of a mutual thing. I think that their minds were not grasping everything that Jesus was saying in this moment, that they're supposed to go in him, and he's supposed to go into them, and they're not, how's this all work? But later they would understand as the Spirit of God would come in Acts 2 and, and, and dwell them, and their lives would be changed. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. So this is super like, this is one of those concepts that's super difficult to actually put into motion and to to put into our hearts and to put in our minds. He says, unless you're in me, unless you are, are connected and getting your nutrients and everything that you need from him, your spiritual development, you can accomplish nothing. And I see this and I go, well, in practice, like, geez, I can do a lot. Like, I can preach a sermon. I can do Sunday school. I can uh, do all sorts of things. There's all sorts of things that we can do. And he's not saying that you're not able to do these things. But unless you are abiding in him and the things that you are doing are an outworking of being with him, the things you're doing are, 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 are meaningless. I, you know, I, I'm preaching a sermon right now, but, but I'm telling you that there are pastors and there are times when I've not been walking with the Lord and you preach a sermon. So from all external, all external places, it looks like, hey, he's doing pretty good. But God's saying he's not walking with me. He's not abiding in me. He's doing this in his own strength. And we need to come to the place where we understand that like, we desperately need to be connected to Jesus. This word that John always mentions, he somehow coined this and he's like locked this into his preaching, like his, his theme, intimacy with God. That, that God needs us to be intimate and close to him. And as we are intimate and close with him, his fruit will begin to manifest it itself in our lives. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Verse six, if anyone does not abide in me and is thrown away, is thrown away as a branch and dries up, they gather them and they cast them into the fire and they are burnt. Now this, this, this verse, there's a lot of like discussion and I'm always going to use my scapegoat. Well, due to time, I don't have time to like go into all of this so there's a, there's, a, there's a variety of opinions. Some would say, like, oh, this is, you know, a person who, like, knew God and then walked away, and so they're dead, and so they're being cast out. Others would say, like, from 1 John 2.19, what I have there, that there, there are others who, like, are, um, that are amongst. So 1 John 2.19 says they were of us. We thought they were a part of us, but it turns out that they weren't really a part of us. We were fooled, and they never were actually, like, one of us. Um, f- f- like regardless of how you like handle this, if you're not in Christ and there's not and like if there's not life from Christ, then there's going to be death and you'll be pruned. And, and that's what it says here. I will comment that when I look at this section, I find it interesting. So that at verse six, it says, "If anyone does not." And then verse 7, it says, if you abide in me. And verse 10, if you keep my commandments. So I'm not sure that he's speaking to them, although he could be referring to Judas. Like, like in the context, remember, Judas is there. Judas just left. 
Judas, he's already called out for, he's going to betray him. He's in the act of betraying him. So maybe this is a reference to Judas, that Judas is one who's already being cut out, like he was never really a part of them. There's no indication that Judas was actually a believer in Christ and that he will see him in heaven, that he was a believer who fell away, made a mistake. Um, but he's pushing them towards abiding. Like this is like one of those like really like kind of gray areas. But we do know that when Jesus continues, he presses them. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. My father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit. And so prove to be my disciples just as the Father has loved me, I have also loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments. Abide in his love. And so uh, this theme that was sort of picked up a couple weeks ago, this ask anything in my name, Jesus has already warned them. Like, I'm going somewhere where you can't go. And they're like, where are you going? Why can't we go with you? I'll die for you. I'll do whatever. Let me come on. Let me go with you, Jesus. And Jesus says, you can't go. And he begins to talk to them about like, hey, the Spirit's going to come. And when you ask, I'll hear you. And I think what Jesus is trying to do for them is to give them assurance. In the next 24 hours, I'm going to be executed. And I'm not going to be in your presence. But know, even though that I'm absent with you physically, know that I am. And know that you can ask and know that I hear you and know that I'll respond. What I want you to do is to abide with me, to walk closely with me, even though I'm not physically going to be present with you in the same way as I've been for the last three years. And a new word is introduced as we begin to transition to this next section. So uh, starting in verse nine, the new word is love, that Jesus starts uh, interjecting this word love a whole bunch of times. He begins with how he and the Father love us, and then it's going to transfer to because of his love for us, he then wants us to take the love that we've received and then to love one another as he has loved us. Just as the Father has loved me, I have also loved you. Abide in my love. So now we're abiding in Jesus We're abiding in his love. So we're making ourselves comfortable in his love that we're abiding there. This is a, like, this is a super powerful concept. He continues, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Just as I have kept my father's commandments, abide in his love. And I'm thinking about this as we go about our days, as we encounter various problems and hiccups and things that sort of shake our faith and our confidence and say, Uh, you know, Gunnar, you have all of these sins in your past. God doesn't love you. God doesn't care about you. Or you're in a crisis and it doesn't feel like God is moving or acting or doing something on your behalf in the midst of the crisis. Jesus is saying, abide in my love. Don't let the lies of saying, don't let the discouragement of your flesh get into your mind so that you forget about how I care for you. I love you and I'm working in your life. And maybe there's something difficult in your life because it's something stupid that you did. It's okay, I love you, I've forgiven you. Or maybe you're actually doing really good stuff for me, but I need to prune back in your life so that you can become more productive in the things that you're doing. And so he's instructing us to stay grounded in his love. Then he says in verse 11, these things I've spoken to you so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be made full. So when I look at this first section, the commands, just to sort of review, we're to abide in the vine. If we get nothing else from today, our marching orders are to stay close to Jesus all the days of our life. In every circumstance, in every event, Jesus wants us to stay in him and grounded to him. As we do this, fruit will manifest its self in our lives. He, he calls us to be fruitful. We're, we're short on time, and I know myself that if I go over there, it'll lead to a whole nother sermon, and the donuts are waiting for us. But in Galatians chapter 5, verses 16 through 25, 
This is such a critical passage. It talks about the fruit of the Spirit and the deeds of the flesh. And you can go over there. I can't go over there because this was one of my like projects that I did in seminary. So if I go over there, it's going to lead into another 45 minutes. But the whole idea, it says, if and you have like received the Spirit, the short of this passage is it uses military terms for keeping in step. So when you see military guys walking and they're in step with one another, if you go downtown around when there's like graduation at the Marine Corps boot camp, even if they're wearing like wigs and you can't see their hair, you can always spot them because young Marines, no matter where they are, he's nodding his head, they walk in step. They cannot shake it. They will, their feet will be mirroring each other because for the last three months, they've been robots. Everywhere they have to go, they have to march and sink. And so they could have hoodies on, they could have stuff, and then they look like surfers. But when they're walking, they're totally in cadence. And the whole passage of Galatians chapter 5, that whole section of the deeds of the flesh and the fruit of the Spirit, it says that we're supposed to get into step with the Spirit. And as we get in the step with the Spirit, what we're told is not that we produce fruit in our own lives. What we're told is, is that he in our lives, as we're in step with him, he produces his fruit singular. So those nine uh, fruits of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, and I run out of words. I don't know that I've, all of those, they're one. It's not a la carte. As we yield our lives to the Spirit and we're in step with him, He produces this fruit in our lives. It's not our fruit because we have nothing to offer. It's his fruit that bears out in our life. And it's a beautiful thing. And Jesus tells us here in John chapter 15, if you do this, if you abide in me, this is the path to true joy, lasting joy, joy of depth and meaning, Uh, regardless of what's happening around you, regardless of what's happening in the political world, regardless of what politicians are doing, regardless of what wars are going on, regardless of what sort of cancer or sickness or anything that you're struggling with, there's a supernatural joy that is available to you as you walk with the Lord. And Jesus is saying, do this. And then he says, transitioning from here, He's like, as you abide in me and in my love, this love will be manifested in your lives. And I want this love to be seen as you all interact with one another. And you have to remember the group of guys, these aren't guys who got like, some of them were like fishermen, they got along. But then you also have Matthew, the tax collector, who everybody hated the tax collector. Then you have a zealot. You have all of these, this, this gang of guys who apart from Christ, they would want nothing to do with each other. And, and, and so often, this is the picture of the church, is that many of us have nothing in common except for we're united through Christ, which then is this beautiful picture for us to be able to demonstrate his love to one another because we have been loved by him, so it changes how we go about our lives. Verse 12, this is my commandment, that you love one another just as I have loved you. So he picks up earlier hours, minutes. I don't know how long it was, but I know back in John chapter 13, verses uh, verses 34 through 35, after Jesus had just washed their feet at the Passover supper, he gets down and he does the thing that requires total humility. This was for a slave to do. And Jesus, as their leader, goes around and he washes their feet. And after he washes their feet, he says, I give you a new commandment. The old commandment was to love yourselves, to love others as you love yourself. But then what he said was, no, love others as I have loved you. I washed your feet. He is on his way to Calvary where ultimately he's going to sacrifice his life for them, which is exactly where he is going. Verse 13, greater love has no one than this, than to lay down his life for his friends. This is like one of these verses and with my seal buddies. Like This is a verse that's so often um, said. It's like they're totally not believers, but this verse is super known amongst like the warrior class. And, and there's one guy who I put through training, who's many of you might know, Michael Monsur. He's a Medal of Honor recipient. Um, 
He was with a group of my friends in Iraq, and a hand grenade came into the building. And as he saw it, he immediately jumped on the hand grenade and sacrificed his life to save the three other guys that were in the room. And I, like, you know, this is a guy that on Memorial Day, we go visit him and a bunch of other buddies at, 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 uh, at uh, Rosecrans. And whenever I get near his thing, it's like, I, like, I don't know that I have that in me. Like, it's one thing to say that it's like, a sounds really good. Yeah. Like, like there's no, to lay down his life for his friends. Yes. But then to be in that moment and to instinctually like do that, I'm I'm thinking my instinct would be to jump off the roof to like get away from it. Like I, like I'm not going to like give, I'm not going to give myself some heroic status. Like, and Jesus says this to them. And so, like, this week, this verse just jumped out at me. Notice the word friend or friends. He says, greater love has no one than this than to lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends. And where is Jesus going? He's going to the cross. So he's letting them know how much he loves them. He knows that he's going to the cross. They're making their way to Gethsemane where Jesus is going to pray that like super famous prayer. Father, if there's any other way, if there's any other way that this cup could pass, can I, is there any other option? There's no other option. The only way for the world to be reconciled to the Father was through Jesus's sacrificial death on the cross. And he doesn't say this for warriors to do. This isn't the context of a, of, a, of a seal jumping on a hand grenade and saving three or four other guys' lives. Like that's as heroic as that is. It's a Medal of Honor recipient. Like, like I, I say this sort of on hallowed ground. Like these are guys I knew. It's nothing compared to what Jesus did on the cross. And he's telling them. The context of this is that he is going to the cross. He's going to give his life because he loves them, because he loves you, because he loves me. And he's doing this so that we could have a relationship with the Father. You are my friends if you do what I command you. you know, I No longer do I call you slaves. For the slave does not know what the master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all Things that I have heard from my Father and I've made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you would go and bear fruit and that your fruit would remain so that whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he may give you. This I command you that you love one another. So in this section, it's a book end with Jesus's command. On both ends, he reminds them his command, what he's instructing them to do is to love one another. As they love one another, they recognize that they have been enabled and empowered to do this, not because of their own strength, not because of their own internal like fortitude and goodness. And they're able to do this because God has appointed them. He's appointed each one of us to live our lives in this way. He has chosen us. We love God because he loved us. We respond. In our nature, we're sinful. We're disobedient. We turn our backs from God, but the Bible tells us that God has pursued us. He's chased after us. He's placed us in these positions so that we might reach out and grope for him as a blind person does with their hands, is what the Apostle Paul says in Acts chapter 17. So he says, I want you to love one another. And this John, who is the only one who wasn't executed for his faith, he lived the longest. And as an old man, he wrote this letter and he would write other books of the Bible. But his, he's kind of known as the, uh, the hippie of the apostles because he's the apostle of love. You know? And it's not that he is wearing a tie-dye t-shirt sort of with long hair, you know, telling everybody to love one another like in the 60s. This is because throughout his Days he was so convicted and so impressed upon by Jesus that their marching orders were to love. And so tradition holds that as an old man, they would carry him into the church and he would be up there and he could barely speak. And he would just say, I have no idea if this is true, but this is what tradition holds. And it's a good story. So we say it, that he would say, love one another, little children, love one another. It fits all of his writings. If we go to first, second, third John, like the, the, the theme that you see 
is that if you want to live for God and if you want his fruit to see the, the manifest itself in your life, to love one another. This is the most practical thing that we can do. Love one another. It's hard to love one another because we annoy each other. You're, you're like, we're, we're not always likable people. We, we don't always keep each other's best interests in mind. But if we are following with Christ and we say, you know what? No, I'm going to love. I'm not going to keep a checklist of people who have wronged me. I'm not going to go tit for tat. My, my checklist is that Jesus loved me. I wronged Jesus. Jesus should have executed me and sent me to hell, but he had mercy on me and he loved me and he's given me new life and he's redeemed me. That's my only checklist. So I don't care, this is in theory, what any of you do to me. Like, I'm not there yet. <laughs> like, whatever y'all do to me, I'm going to keep loving you. Those are my marching orders. I fall short all the time. Like, I fall short in my heart. But I know that my marching orders, the standard that has been set to love one another as Jesus has loved me. Praise God that Jesus didn't wait till I was a good person. Praise God that while I was yet as still a sinner, Jesus died for me. Like, so, like so thankful. And I want to be more like him. And so then he transitions to this last section, which really goes into the four verses of chapter 16. The, the, the first two parts are super easy like, in, in concept. Like, Jesus loves you, abide in him. As you abide in him, fruit will produce. One of the most important pieces of fruit that he wants to see in our lives is that we love one another. And now the whole guitar singing kumbaya my lord around the campfire it's going to come to a screeching halt because that's like i mean who everybody loves eating marshmallows around the campfire singing like i don't even know the rest of the word i don't even know if there are the rest of the words of kumbaya my lord i think that's the whole song but it's just like a feel good like but now point number one of the next section the world hates you (laughs) this is like wait wait whoa 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 like where He goes on to say, if the world hates you, and it does hate us, like the world hates our message, why? If the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world because of this, this, the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you. A slave is not greater than his master. He said that back in John chapter 13. The slave is not greater than his master, but it's okay for the the slave to become like the master. And Jesus is saying, I want you to become like me. You can't become better than me, but I want you to become like me. And so he says that I want you to remember this. If they persecuted me, he's speaking to himself. Remember, he's heading to the Garden of Gethsemane. He's heading to the place where Judas would give him the famous kiss, where they would arrest him and they would begin beating him. uh, Without mercy, that one. Merciless? Mercilessly, that one. That's a hard word right now for me. They're going to beat him to the pulp. By the time he goes to the cross, the scriptures say that they can't even tell if he's a man or what, like that he's just so, so bloodied and so beaten and so mangled that by the time he even gets to the cross, most people would have died. And he's saying, like, they're probably not picking up right now. But in the next 12 hours, I think that these words are going to be penetrating to them. The fear that they would feel Following the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, we see these guys hiding behind locked doors. We see them scattered. We see them not knowing what they're going to do. And Jesus keeps coming to them and saying, Shalom, peace be with you. It's going to be okay. Verse 21, but, these, but all these things they will do to you for my name's sake because they do not know the one who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not, they would not have sinned, but now they have no excuse for their sin. He who hates, hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works which no one else did, they would not have sinned. But now they have both seen and hated me from my father as well. 
but they have done this to fulfill the word that was written in the law and their law. They hated me without a cause. Now there's a lot of like stuff that's super complicated in there that when I say complicated scholars like grapple over like, what's he saying that they'd be without sin. And I think that the, the, the simplest way to understand what he's saying is if we slide over in my Bible, just over to the next page in chapter 16, verse nine, what Jesus says, um, or maybe going back to verse 8, and he, when he comes, referring to the Spirit, will convict the world converting, concerning sin and righteousness and judgment, concerning sin because they did not believe in me. And so they seem to think that what he's saying here is that, that they have now seen Jesus. They, they have had every opportunity, and they've rejected the Messiah in this moment, these religious leaders who are claiming to have all of the answers, they're going to execute the promised Messiah. They, they've missed the boat. And Jesus is basically saying, like, listen, you're going to suffer persecution, but don't think you're special because you're, if you're my followers, this is what they did to me. They're going to do it to you also. And I can imagine that this would be super hard for them to hear. And I'm not even sure that they were processing, processing everything. But Jesus is going to begin to transition to the next section to say, it's going to be okay, a helper is coming. And in verse 26, we read, when the helper comes, referring to the Holy Spirit, whom I will send to you from the Father, that is the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will testify about me, and and you will testify also, because you have been with me from the beginning." These things I have spoken to you so that you may be kept from stumbling. They will make you outcasts from the synagogue, but an hour is coming for everyone who kills you to think that he is offering service to God. These things they will do because they have not known the Father or me, but these things I have spoken to you so that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told you of them. These things I did not say to you at the beginning because I was with you. And so he's saying things are about to change. And I'm telling you about the, the, the bad experiences that you're about to have for the sole purpose, number one, that you won't stumble when they happen. And number two, that when they happen, you'll remember that I said this to you. So often in the Christian world, we try to lure the unsaved with promises that the Bible doesn't offer. Oh, if you just come to Jesus, all your problems are going to go away. Happiness, wealth, health, the world will be yours. And the young person in the Middle East from a Muslim family says, I've given my life to Jesus. All my problems are going to go away. No, son your problems just began in this world. Like it's going to get really ugly for you. I remember the first time I went skydiving, bear with me for those of you that heard the story, probably a lot of you. Um, I was told I was going to go from static line in the army. Static line is nice and easy. You just kind of clip up to a wire. You just basically run out of the plane and, and everything takes care of itself. And if it doesn't, there's not really a whole lot you can do. So so there's not really a whole lot to worry about. You don't, you're not, you know, the thing you're wearing on your back, it was done by professionals. You hook up. I mean, literally, all, anybody can do it. Like, all of you, I can get to static line if I can get you to jump out the back. You'll, you'll mostly be fine. Um, <laughs> now, free fall is a totally different experience. So they send you to the Army. You, they send you out to, uh, what is it, Vietnam, Fayetteville, North Carolina. And you go to this Army this army school, you spend half your day packing up the parachute and they go by and they inspect you. They tell you step-by-step, making sure that everything's right. The other half of the day, they put you in a wind tunnel, which is a big fan and you're flying around like a potato chip. And then that happens for one week. Then they send you to Yuma. You check in at Yuma and they say, okay, we're going to pack your chutes just like you learned last week. And so it's like, okay, yeah, we've been doing this all week. But then suddenly you say, I would do a really good job with this one because this one that you're packing right now, you're going to go jump with this tomorrow morning. Huh? Like, wait, whoa, whoa, whoa. I'm not qualified to pack a parachute. Like, that's for other people to do. And they're like, no, 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 you're going to do So I have my iron out, making sure everything's perfect. 
They're like, well, you can roll the nose so it opens softly. I'm like, I don't, I don't want, I don't want that. I want assurance. Like, well, then just do it nice and flat, and it will open very violently. It's like, that's the one I want. And so then, I put on the parachute and I put on the plane. And what I recognize is that first time, and every other time that I jumped for the hundreds of jumps, like I was never a guy that was super comfortable with like rolling the nose and making a soft opening or anything like that. But I would like cinch down the strap so I could barely stand up. My shoulders hurt, my crotch hurt, everything hurt because my fear is that because I made the chute so it opened super fast is that I would fall out of it. So I wanted to make sure that like I was in there. I hate skydiving. I never liked it. I like it's foolish. Um, <laughs> but it's like, but I had to do it a whole bunch. And so then I'd be in the plane and it's like you're sitting there and you're like, this thing is so miserable. Now, if somebody told me that, hey, we're going to give you this parachute, it's like being in first class. It's like your drinks are going to come to you and you're going to have food and it's going to make your flight experience so much more pleasant. Uh, you're going to be happy. You're not going to have any problems. You're going to be super just comfortable. If somebody told me that, and then I got onto the plane, I would be so angry and I would take it off. And so often that's what happens with Christianity is we, we, we lure people with the wrong reasons for why they're coming to Jesus. I don't wear a parachute to make my flight more comfortable. I wear a parachute because I don't want to hit the ground at 120 miles an hour and die. Like, that's why I wear a parachute. And I don't come to Jesus to, 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 to take away all my problems. I don't come to Jesus so that I'm healthy and that I don't get cancer and I don't have a heart attack and I don't have uh, all the other things that could happen to us in this life. Bad things happen to Christians just like they happen to non-believers. But we come to Jesus so that when we hit the ground in our death, we have life. But that life begins at conversion, not necessarily death. We just transition. A, a buddy of mine the other day posted something that, that really like, had an impact on me. Normally, he's obnoxious. He's a Raiders fan. He's from, the, he's from Oakland. And he's a medical examiner chaplain. So he's like a really a dark person. And so most of the time, I just ignore his stuff. But every now and again, he says something. And he just had this, this, this picture on social media. And it said, you're, you're not a body with a soul. You're a soul that has a body, which changes everything. Like, we, we, are, we are souls that have these bodies. When we die, we're separated from our, our we're going to lose these bodies, but our soul continues. And so Jesus' death on the cross is to ensure that our souls are with him upon death, because at death, your decision time is over. At death, you face judgment. And so Jesus is telling these guys that things are going to get bad. He's letting them know that they're going to be persecuted, that all of them except for John were going to get executed for their faith. And he's saying, I'm telling you this so when it happens, you'll remember the words I said and not lose hope. Know that the things that I did, you saw them. You saw everything that I did. You can have assurance that I'm for real, that I'm legitimate. So what do we do with this passage? We got to wrap up here. Like, I can't speak for you, but for me, like, I want to walk closely with Jesus. Um, I want to abide with him. I want my life to be surrendered to him. I want my life to be in his hand, regardless of what happens in the world. And my problem is, is that there's so many temptations, there's temptations like within me because my flesh is weak. There's temptations without because there's a whole world that's, that's spouting out information that's, that's trying to lead me astray. And so my solution, like on, on the, well, let's start with the negative. It's like, so on the negative side, there are things as followers of Christ, there are some things that we probably need to do. And when I say negative, there are things that we need to act, actively cut out of our lives. There might be people that we need to disengage with. There might be news sources that we need to disengage with. You probably need to disengage with politics. 
Because you're not going to find any hope there. You're only going to find frustration. Whatever thing that is distancing you from Jesus, you probably need to cut it out of your life. And I can't tell you what that is. And when I Now, positive things, there are also positive things that we need to do. There are spiritual disciplines, like being in the Word of God, that we need to be putting in God's Word into our, into our minds, into our hearts. Uh, we need to be praying, communicating with the Savior who saved us. He desires us to be communicating to him throughout the day, not just like for 30 seconds in the morning or right before meals, but like as you're going through your day, he wants you to be communicating with him. You can have your eyes open. You can be driving your car. You can be walking around. You can be preaching a message and saying, Lord, help me in the background. Like, like our brains and our minds and our bodies are really complex and we're able to carry out multiple tasks at the same time. He wants to be involved in your life. And so we can do that by praying. This last three years, when they said you can't gather, we, we crossed a line in the sand, was like, okay, where does safety, where does gathering, like where, where, where is the line? And these are things that we had to grapple with. But I'm convinced over the last three years, if anything else, like the thing I'm most like walking away from is that what we do here in this time of teaching and worshiping and gathering and eating donuts together, like, like, this is super critical because in these relationships, in these bonds, this is where we spur one another. This is where we establish relationships so that when the bottom falls out, there's a network there that can be there to help you and to sustain you. So my prayer is that I and you, that we all would get in step with the Spirit starting today and for the rest of our lives so that his fruit would bear out in our lives. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you and praise you for this day. We thank you for your word. I thank you for this chapter, this, these three sections that I flew over. Father, I pray that you would help us to abide in you, that we would walk with you closely, that we would stay close and connected to you so that your fruit would bear itself out in our lives. We pray, Father, that you would help us with this new command that you've given that we would love one another as you have loved us. This can be difficult, God. Um, but we pray that by your grace, by your mercy, by your spirit, that you would help us to love like you, to love a world around us um, that maybe doesn't love as you loved, but that we would love sacrificially. Help us to do this. And Father, as persecution and difficulties and trials of this world come, we pray that you would help us to keep the ultimate reason for our relationship with you front and center. We come to you so that our relationship with the Father could be restored. We come to you so that we can find joy that the world cannot offer us. We pray, Father, that you would help us to be grounded children of yours, and that your light would radiate out from us to a world that is lost and, and wandering aimlessly. We thank you, God, for the security that we have in Christ Jesus. And it's in his good name we pray. Amen.